This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for September 14th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, here in the United States, we've just started administering booster doses of bivalent vaccines. As we discussed last week, these mRNA vaccines contain both the sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 spike from the original viral strain and one derived from the recent BA.4.5 strains. We don't yet have human data for these, although animal studies suggest that these vaccines will induce high levels of variant-specific antibodies, and we don't know yet how those will translate into protection. This week, we did publish a few studies about the older vaccines that help illuminate how vaccines might be used now and in the future. I'd like to start with a study about one of the most serious adverse events that's been associated with vaccination, vaccine-induced immune thrombocytopenia and thrombosis, or VITT. What did we learn in this study? Steve, VITT is a very serious syndrome that's been associated almost exclusively with vaccines that use attenuated adenovirus vectors. The pathogenesis is unclear, but we've seen this with both CHADOX-1, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is based on a chimpanzee adenovirus, and AD26-CoV-2-S, the Janssen vaccine, that uses a human adenovirus. The rate is very low, somewhere in the range of 1 to 16 cases per million doses, though the outcomes can be quite poor, including deaths and severe disability. One of the questions has been whether this syndrome would be seen with another adenovirus-based vaccine, the Russian Sputnik V vaccine. This vaccine isn't available in the U.S., but it's been used in parts of Europe, Asia, and South America. There has been a limited amount published about Sputnik V, and until now, no reports of VITT. The report we published today is from a pharmacovigilance program in Argentina. They found 11 cases of VITT associated with CHADOX-1 and two cases after Sputnik V. They go into detail on one of these, a fatal case that occurred in a previously healthy 24-year-old woman. Again, it's very difficult to know why we're seeing this problem with these vaccines, but it clearly has something to do with the vector system. It seems that we're moving away from these vaccines as we develop second-generation agents. But this is concerning, and these vectors have been utilized for a variety of other infections. So, Eric, I think that these reports, in part, teach us that the surveillance systems that we developed after rapid development of these vaccines work quite well. And as we've discussed previously, one of the concerns of many of us, myself included, as we demonstrated efficacy of different vaccines, was how well did we understand the safety? And through the surveillance systems that the CDC, such as VAERS and other public health agencies have set up around the world, such as this system in Argentina, we can see that these systems do work, especially for severe side effects of concern like VITT. And I find that very reassuring as it provides an ability for us to develop a better safety database while we develop new therapies expeditiously. I also think that it raises questions about understanding the biology of this kind of side effect. Is it related to the delivery system or the insert? And that has different implications. We know that SARS-CoV-2 is associated with thrombogenesis and blood clot, and treatment of that is an important part of the treatment of severe illness with COVID. However, This may well not be related to the insert and may be a property of the delivery system, in which case we have to think carefully about how we use vector delivery systems, adenoviral vector delivery systems, not only for COVID, 
but for other infectious diseases and gene therapies. I am not aware of significant reports of VITT in these other uses. Granted, they're in much smaller numbers, but it does raise the issue of proper surveillance, given the concern that it may be a property of the delivery system. And lastly, the issue of risk-benefit. Early on in the pandemic, when we had limited treatment and prevention options, then the benefit of vaccination, even with a very, very low risk of side effect, was easily the right thing to do. As we have more vaccines available and broader population immunity, then we need to think carefully about the risk-benefit ratio of our different interventions to provide the best benefit to our patients. So I think in the last two and a half years, we've come a long way in developing vaccines and understanding their risk-benefit ratio to overall global benefit. However, there are clear nuances here emerging that are strongly influencing how we think about scaling up these therapies. I think it's a great point, Lindsay. It certainly is true that we have to be thinking about risk and benefit. And that's going to apply to other vaccines that use this vector system. As I said, clearly this problem is associated with this vector as three different formulations all do the same thing. It's still possible, though, that it's the vector antigen combination because the antigens are essentially identical, and it's conceivable that it won't happen with others. The question is going to be whether or not it's worth making a large investment in other vaccines based on this technology. We do have one other approved vaccine, to my knowledge. You may know more of the Ebola vaccine, and that one has been used very successfully. The risk-benefit ratio there is, I think, quite clear because it's a disease associated with high fatality rates, but it hasn't been administered to the millions of people that we need to give it to before we saw a problem like this arise. Eric, I just want to point out that Sputnik V contains both AD26 and AD5 as delivery systems. Therefore, as we think about this potential complication, we need to understand if it's related to the broader adenovirus platform versus specific serotypes. As both AD5 and AD26, as well as the CHAD-OX, have been used for a variety of other infectious disease vaccines, including Ebola, HIV, Zika, as well as gene delivery systems. And so I think that we have much to learn to better define the safety and the mechanism of these complications to be able to minimize their occurrence. We've seen a number of studies that looked at the relative efficacy of our current vaccines against the newer variants. And today we published another study from South Africa. How is this one different from the others? Because this one takes place in South Africa, it has a certain advantage. The Outbreak in South Africa has been unusual because it consists of discrete periods of disease, each caused by a new variant virus, with periods of time with very low infection rates separating them. This makes it much easier to study protection against each variant because which variant is present can easily be determined by the date of infection. On the other hand, the rates of prior infection are very high in this country. So it's important to consider that vaccine protection might well represent some combination of the immunity induced by vaccination and by prior infection. And what did the authors of this study find? They looked at people who were hospitalized during a wave caused by BA1 and BA2 variants, and those during a BA4 and a BA5 wave, and determined who had received vaccine. 
all vaccinated individuals had received BNT162B2, the Pfizer vaccine. They used these data to calculate protective effectiveness over time of either two or three doses. They found that effectiveness was somewhat better against BA1 and BA2 than against BA4 and BA5. But the reduced effectiveness was primarily associated with the time since receiving the vaccine, with reasonably high rates of protection early and lower rates later. Effectiveness of two doses against BA4 and BA5 fell to about 20% at nine months. That's not very good, but it might be a little better than in other studies and might reflect the synergistic protection being afforded by prior infection. Eric, I think we have to think carefully about how we're defining protection or vaccine efficacy. These studies are very important to illuminate the diminished protection afforded by vaccination as different variants emerge. But this is largely mild to moderate infection, not severe illness and hospitalization. So I suspect that the benefit for more severe illness remains substantially higher once there's background immunity. We do have to think carefully about what we expect immunity to SARS-CoV-2 will be over time. In fact, if we look at the seasonal coronaviruses, four of them that were circulating widely before the current pandemic, many of us had repeated infections with these viruses because the immunity was not sterilizing and very long lasting. Might SARS-CoV-2 evolve in a way that is analogous to its predecessors that we have grown accustomed to, something we will learn with time. And we have to realize that as we develop broad immunity, be it through vaccination or infection, in order for the virus to continually circulate, the new variant has to have a modicum of escape to the prior elicited immunity. So by definition, the newer variants will always be a little bit slippery in relation to the prior elicited immune response. So I think that there's much that we'll continue to learn. And from these kinds of population studies, we can better understand the degree to which there is loss of protection, but it's loss of protection for mild illness. We need to be a little bit cautious before we infer that we're going to have significant levels of severe illness. One of the questions that we've discussed several times is whether there might be an advantage to developing mucosal immunity rather than just systemic immunity. There's no single parameter that defines a mucosal immune response, and none are easy to measure. So given that, the simplest is probably measuring secretory antibody. This week, we published a study that looked at the effectiveness of secreted IgA response on preventing infection. So how was this study done, and what did we learn? This research group looked at more than 300 healthcare workers who received three doses of vaccine and determined secreted amounts of IgA and IgG. They had previously looked at systemic IgG responses in the same cohort. They found that the major mucosal responses were IgA, and those with prior infection, in addition to vaccination, tended to have the highest levels. For me, the most interesting part of the study is when they looked at the risk of infection. It's a very small sample size, and that means the results are imprecise, and in fact, the confidence intervals completely overlap. But it does appear that the risk of infection might be lower in those who had very high levels of mucosal IgA. This is far from definitive evidence, but it does suggest that there might be a correlation between protection and mucosal immunity, at least as measured by antibody levels. I think this has to be tempered by the observation that most people with high levels also had prior infection, which we know also correlates with better protection. 
but it does offer some hope for those trying to come up with vaccine strategies that will induce better mucosal immunity. So Eric, I think this study points out the very important concept of the potential dissynchrony between key compartments, the mucosal compartment and the systemic compartment. And as we previously discussed, vaccination and prior infection have profound effects on the systemic compartment in preventing progression to severe illness. What we've seen with large-scale transmission throughout our communities in the context of large-scale prior immunity suggests dyssynchrony between these compartments. And these data are very intriguing to suggest one potentially important factor that may relate to viral expansion in the mucosal compartment, the nasopharynx, a place that is likely highly relevant to transmission. I do worry a bit that we measure one piece of the immune response and draw broad conclusions. When we think about the immune response on mucosal surface, there is the B-cell compartment, which includes IgG, IgA, IgM, and a variety of subclasses with different functions. There's also the innate response and T-cell immunity, both of which have additional broad manifestations in how they respond to pathogens. So we look at a particular parameter, we see a trend, but we need to be careful that we don't fully understand the immune response elicited. I do think these data are very important in reminding us that the mucosal compartment is likely behaving differently than the systemic compartment for a variety of teleologic reasons, and that we need to better define this as we want to understand how to elicit immune responses that can block transmission. I still will reflect on the issue of blocking transmission versus attenuating severity of illness as reflected by the seasonal coronaviruses that we didn't think much of prior to three years ago. I want to amplify on something that you have said twice already in this podcast, which is talking about disease severity. It's important to remember that as we toss around numbers that suggest very low efficacy of the vaccines in preventing infection, that they do appear to retain excellent efficacy in preventing severe infection and hospitalization. So despite the fact that a lot of time has passed since many people have gotten their vaccines, and despite the fact that a lot of people are being infected right now, vaccines are still providing help to people. And as we look at new boosters, especially boosters designed to have a closer match to the current circulating viral strains, I think it's important to keep in mind that people are very likely to benefit from these, perhaps not in never getting sick, but in not getting very sick. And Eric, as you said, there's a time feature to this that I think we have to think carefully about as we interpret these types of data. The time since the last immune-inducing event, be it a vaccination or wild-type infection, I think is another parameter that we have to weigh carefully as we define and understand the immune response elicited and its durability. I also want to point out that the booster vaccines being more closely matched to what's circulating, we still don't understand what the best booster is. As a scientific community, boosting with an Omicron-based variant of concern makes a lot of sense given its immunologic divergence from the ancestral strain and it's what's predominantly circulating globally. But whether BA1 or BA4.5 is more important as a sequence in the vaccine is really unknown. 
And that is reflected in the different choices made by different communities, such as in the US, BA4-5 being moved forward as the boosting strategy, while in large parts of Europe and other parts of the world, BA1 is being used. It's unclear if there's going to be a significant difference between either of these boosting strategies, as the key concept is to augment immunity to the Omicron lineage, since that's what's circulating predominantly. It's certainly true that we don't know what's going to happen with these vaccines. Are they going to improve protection? And are the Omicron strains still going to be around by the time most people receive this vaccine? I think both of those are open questions, and we'll see. I'd say again, something that each of us have said before, while we don't know that these vaccines are going to be much better, they're certainly very unlikely to be worse. They're likely to provide at least the same amount of protection that repeat vaccination had before. So I would still encourage physicians to continue to offer these vaccines and suggest that patients get them, particularly those at highest risk of disease. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.